0: All right, yeah, fun times. We are in week three of a series, three-part series called Whitewater, and some of us took that literally this week. We went up and went whitewater rafting, and I have to tell you, when Steve Wright is sitting in front of you, you don't get very wet. Say, massive man in front of you, but uh, if Carl was in front of me, I would have got really wet, so you know that's just how it works. But we've been talking about these times in our life, we call them whitewater moments, where we're kind of heading towards the rapids, and things get a little scary, they get a little chaotic, and we're not really sure how things are going to turn out, and we just need something to hold on to during those times. Sometimes we look back at those times and our faith was stretched, or we lost our faith for a while, and we've been saying we can take a breath, because that's oh. to be a place where we struggle in life, to be a place where we struggle with God. Because sometimes you feel like you've fallen out of the boat, right? And the water's in your face and you're just trying to get a breath. You're, you're, You're hoping that somebody will pull you back into the boat. And God is there and God says, I'm here and I love you. And I'm faithful, and that's what we've been talking about in this series called Whitewater. I had the chance, again, this last summer for the second time to be the camp speaker for our children's summer camp called Blitz. And so from one end of this room to another, we have kids all over the place, and it's fantastic. And I speak four times a day, and so for four times a day, for four days, I say the same thing over and over and over. I say, kiddos, if you forget everything that I've said... I mean, if you walk out the door and you don't even remember who I am, if you don't even remember that you were at Blitz, I want you to remember just one thing. Remember that God absolutely loves you no matter what. And Rami Romer, who directs that camp, she'll stand up on the stage at the end of the camp and she'll say, kids, remember what Sean said this week over and over and over again? And she'll say, grab onto it, catch it, put it in your heart, and lock it away because you're going to need it. And so this morning, adults, sophisticated, and might I say very good looking adults this morning, holiday weekend, and you guys did a good job. Way to go. God is here. God loves you, and He is faithful. Catch it. Put it in your heart and lock it away. Because you and I are going to need that as we travel through this thing called life and we hit those white water moments. People have always needed to hold on to that. The ancient people who wrote the scriptures, the ancient people who received the scriptures, the people that lived around those people, they needed it too. They struggled with the same human struggles that we are challenged with. Things like, how are we going to make ends meet this month in our family? kids struggling with their parents. Kids have always thought, my parents, they they just don't know what's up. Parents struggling with their kids, worrying about how next week, how next year, how their life is going to go. Struggles with health, struggles with all sorts of things. They were just like we were. And you know, strength and courage are great things, and when you're heading towards a whitewater, rapid strength and courage are are, are phenomenal things to hold on to, but I think actually what we've been talking about is something more significant than that. You and I need something to hold on to, and that's hope. We all need hope. See, hope is that thing that when it's not around, we feel it, we know it, we sense it, And it can be a really dark time when students uh, lose hope, they check out, they drop out. They may be sitting at the desk, but mentally, relationally, emotionally, they've dropped out. When marriage partners lose hope, they call it quits. You can have the most talented athletic team in the world, or maybe you have the most talented team at your work, and that team loses hope. And then you go on a losing streak again and again and again. Without hope, people that are addicted return to their addictions. Without hope, inventors and creatives, entrepreneurs and, um, and artists and even engineers and, yes, even, even pastors lose their drive. We lose our creativity. Hope is critical to us. see, hope isn't just something nice that helps us temporarily clear a hurdle or make it through the whitewater rapids. Hope is essential to our lives. And without hope, we end up living somewhere between discouragement on one end of the spectrum and despair on the other end of the spectrum. And sometimes a lot of life can be lived right between those two. And because pain and suffering are a universal language of all peoples, of all times, of all races, we need hope. We all need hope. And so we've been talking about this letter in the New Testament called Romans, this this old letter, this ancient letter written about 2,000 years ago to this young church by this early leader of the church named Paul. Paul was an apostle. He was a leader. And so he's writing this letter because he wants to give this small congregation hope. And if he doesn't do it, they're in trouble because they're They're in great conflict with one another, and they have the potential to rip themselves apart. They were struggling with all sorts of things. They were struggling with racial conflict. They were struggling with cultural conflict. They were struggling with religious conflict. Has anybody read any stories in the news over the last year about racial, cultural, or religious conflict? How about the last 24 hours? It's amazing how the scriptures are so relevant to today, especially when we do some background work, and we discover the story layers behind the scriptures. So often we read the words on the page, and we may be confused on one end, or we may feel like, oh, that just doesn't really help me. It's, it's when the story layers come to light that the black and white goes to color. And Paul is speaking to this church, and they're, they're, they're battling against one another. You have one group, the ethnically Jewish. You have the other group, the Gentiles, and they're not really sure how to come to what I've been calling the table of Jesus and dying together as one. And in fact, one of the groups, the Gentiles are wondering about the Israelites at this time. And the Israelites are wondering, wondering about themselves at this time. Maybe God has given up on us. Maybe he's done with us. We were his chosen people, but maybe not anymore. And some of them were wondering, actually, well, maybe God messed up. Like his rescue plan didn't work, plan A didn't work, and so he had to have a plan B. And again and again, all throughout the book of Romans, Paul has said no. And especially when we get to 9, 10, and 11, Paul has said no. God is here, God loves you, and he's faithful. And he's telling this ancient church, grab onto it, put it in your heart, and lock it away because you need that. And so now we arrive at chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to Romans chapter 11. We also have it on the U version. If you have that Bible app, that would be fantastic if you could pull that up. And there are some seat Bibles around you as well. And one of the things that Paul is trying to say to this church is that no one, absolutely no one, is too far gone. So, Gentiles, don't get conceited and think that God's done with the Israelites God's not done with anybody absolutely no one is too far gone we've been asking the question over the last couple of weeks who is on your heart who do you have a burden for these days there's somebody that you're hoping for that you're praying for that they would experience the transformational love of Jesus and that's exactly what's going on in the book of Romans and we see at the end of chapter 8 several weeks ago we talked about that Paul is Filled with joy. He's filled with excitement because nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then, almost like a roller coaster, he heads down into sorrow in chapter 9, and he's grieving. And he would trade everything if he could so that his own people, those of his own race, would experience that love that he has experienced. And then, remarkably, by the end of chapter 11... Paul has his joy back. He goes from joy to sorrow to joy. In fact, he has his joy back so much that he writes a song. And he sings the song, and he does exactly what we just did. He actually takes some words from the scriptures that he had in his hands at the time, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and he pulls them forward. And then he writes some of his own words into this thing called a doxology. They were words of glory. To God. And he just finishes chapter 11 by singing. If you look down in verse 33, this is the song. It says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Why did Paul move from sorrow to joy? How could he do that? How can we in our lives move from sorrow to joy as we head into and we're in the midst of these difficult seasons of life? One of the reasons is that Paul believed to the core of his being that no one is too far gone. And as I say that, you may be thinking of somebody else, but I also want you to turn the camera on yourself. No one, even you, is too far gone. God has this huge capacity, this huge heart, this huge ability to reach out, and grab anybody out of the white water and pull them back into the boat. And this was God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't to scrap the world. It was to rescue the world. And the world actually includes you. And so Paul is trying to encourage them because he wants their sorrow to actually be joy. He wants their conflict to become unity and peace. And so if you back up all the way to the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 1, he begins this last chapter by saying, I ask then. In other words, therefore, after everything that I've said in this letter up to this point, and especially, and especially after everything that I've said in the last couple chapters, He asks this question, did God reject his people? And it's almost like he just takes a breath. Now, after everything I've said, are you guys starting to believe me that God did not reject his people? And he says, by no means. And then he adds this, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. It's almost as if Paul says, look, if God can save me, he can save anybody. If God can pull me back into the boat, then he can pull you back into the boat. Paul was the guy that used to say, you know, if I entered the church, the the roof will cave in. And he says, it didn't happen. (laughs) If it didn't happen to me, it's not going to happen to you. No one is too far gone. Verse 2 says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. See, God always had this plan. God's been faithful, as we've been saying over the last couple weeks, he's been faithful to his covenant. He's had this plan since the very beginning, and Paul understood that, and he wanted them to understand it as well. And then Paul's going to do what he's been doing all along. He goes back to their story, and he retells their story. He's going to tell a piece of their story once again. He says, don't you know what the scripture says, which was sort of a, sort of a slap in the face. Jesus used to do this all the time. Haven't you read the scriptures? Don't you know what the scripture says? To say that to an ancient Jew was like a big slap in the face because absolutely, yes, they knew what the scripture said. They probably had it memorized. And so Paul is challenging them to remember their story and to look at it through a new paradigm. Let's reexamine some of your story and maybe pull that forward so that you can have hope today in your story. And so he looks back and he says what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah. How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul goes back into the story. You can find this story in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. Elijah was a prophet, and a prophet was somebody who spoke for God. He, he, he spoke to the people. Usually what the job of a prophet was was to woo the people back to God. Hey, your lives are singing out of tune. They're flat. They're pitchy. They're not, they're not singing in harmony with God. Would you come back into harmony with God? You're going the wrong way. You're not living out the humanity that you were created for. And it's destroying your life. It's destroying us. And that was the job of a prophet. And Elijah lived actually during one of the darkest periods of the nation of Israel. In 931, they split in two. There was a northern kingdom still called Israel. There was a southern kingdom that was called Judah. And they each had their own places to worship, and they each had their own kings. And generation after generation after generation, there were all of these kings. And most of them were not good. And when Elijah was alive, the king was Ahab, and he was not good. And his wife was Queen Jezebel, and she was even worse. And together they committed atrocities in the nation. They stole people's land. And when they would not give up the land, they would just kill them. They actually committed mass murder. If you were one of these prophets, they came after you. If you didn't worship one of the Baals... Now, a Baal, just that just means Lord. And there were lots of Baals. And there were these beliefs that there were gods behind the Baals, the storm gods or the weather gods or the fertility gods or whatever it was. And, and they were drawing everybody in the nation to reject the God of Israel and to worship these false gods. And if you were a prophet who spoke for the God of Israel then they were going to come after you and kill you. In fact, Obadiah, who worked for the king, secretly followed the God of Israel, and he took a hundred of these prophets and he hid them in two caves, 50 in one and 50 in the other. And he gave them water and he gave them food. It was a dark time. People are cowering and living in caves. And Elijah is the greatest prophet during this time. And he has this phenomenal victory that you can read about against the prophets of Baal. And God shows that He is the true God. And right after this phenomenal victory, Jezebel says, You have 24 hours and I'm going to kill you. By the end of this time, tomorrow, you're dead. And Elijah runs away after this great victory. And then we find him in a ditch. And he's exhausted. And he's alone. And he is depressed. He's so depressed. He's so discouraged. He's ready to just end it. I'm done, God. I don't want to live anymore. And God wakes him up, and God cares for him. God feeds him, and then he just goes back to sleep again. I'm just, I'm done. And then God wakes him up, and he takes him on this journey, and he takes him to this mountain, and he takes him to this cave, and he speaks to his heart. And Elijah's like, I'm the only one. Everybody's rejected you. I am all alone in this, God. People have rejected you God, have you failed? This is it. I'm I'm done with this. You ever feel like that? You ever just have the experience of aloneness? See, aloneness is is different than loneliness. Loneliness, I think, is something that we all experience from time to time, and, and, and we can get over it. Aloneness is much darker. I have a book on my shelf called A Generation Alone written about 25 years ago. It's actually all about my generation And how as society has moved forward, there's been this disconnectedness that has gone on. There's another great book, a study on this, by a guy named, uh, I think his name is Richard Putnam, called Bowling Alone. Aloneness. Aloneness is the feeling of uselessness. It's the feeling that you get when you just feel like you're alienated from everybody else. It's this sense that you just can't move forward in life that that nobody understands you nobody understands what you're going through this is what elijah is experiencing and god says to him i'm here don't worry about it i love you and i'm faithful but he also does something else quite significant he says actually there's 7000 other people that have not bowed their knee to this false god 7000 others elijah Elijah actually knew about the hundred people. He knew logically that he wasn't alone, but he still experienced aloneness. And in the midst of that, we need to know not just that God's here, but there are others as well. One of the ways, one of the pathways that we try to build this sense of community because we all need people with skin on. We all need one another. We need God, and God has created us in such a way that we actually need one another. And so one of the things that we try to do is we try, try to create these spaces where people can build those kinds of relationships. So last Tuesday night, we had 70-plus people that were in this room just exploring this idea of what a grow group is. Grow groups are, are those things where people gather together and they study the scriptures and they pray, but they also share their emotions. They also share their lives. They also laugh together. They go kayaking together. They run together. They have barbecues together on Labor Day. Anybody going to barbecue this weekend? It's, you know, this is what re- people in relationships do. This is what people in community do. They come to the table and they dine together. They do life together. And so everything we do is, is this idea of trying to create different types of spaces where people can bump into each other and begin to build relationships. And sometimes those relationships are hard to build, and other times it, it's, it's, it seems to work out. And so we want to encourage you again and again and again to keep trying. In fact, out in the lobby today we have, uh, the, at the info bar we have some information. You can actually get some information about all these different grow groups. You can also go online. You can see who's leading the groups and, and, and what they're about and what kind of group it is because we all need to know That we are not the only one. That there are others that are going through challenges as well. They're they're maybe swimming in the whitewater rapids just like we are, but they're on the other side of the boat. (laughs) They're on the other side of the raft and we can't see each other. And we need to work hard to come together and say, oh, I'm not the only one. And so why why is Paul bringing up this part of the story? Because this little church needed to know the same thing as well. Remember, the Israelites are wondering if they're done. And they began to experience this sense of aloneness. The whole world is flooding, it seemed, to the table of Jesus. The Gentiles are flooding into the church. And we're not. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to look around and go, it's not happening for us right now. What is going on? And Paul is reminding them, it is happening. It's not happening at the pace that we want it to happen. And that's why he's in grief. But he's saying, don't give up. There are others. There are others around you. And that's exactly what he's going to say in the next verse. And so look down in verse 5 of chapter 11. He says, so too at the present time. So he's talking about his time, not our time. And we look back on that time, but it's their time. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then he adds verse 6, just to make sure we know it's all by grace and not by works. He says, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And so this idea of works, as we've been saying, has kind of twofold. One is sort of the pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. And can you, for them at that time, for the ancient Jew, can you follow the law? Can you be good enough? Can you clean yourself up enough so that God would bless you? But the other way that they understood it, and actually I believe that in Romans this is the primary way, is that works meant ethnic privilege. See, the ancient Jews knew they were the chosen people of God. They knew that God was supposed to bless the whole world through them. Isaiah had already said, Isaiah was another prophet in the Old Testament, he had already said that they were to be the light of the world. But they had this idea that they were sort of the privileged people and that everybody would flock to them. And they kind of had it backwards. Because after Jesus came and he died and he rose again, what did he do? He sent everybody away and out. Go into all the world. Pursue this world and invite people to the table of Jesus. It's a remarkable reversal. Some theologians call it the great reversal. And this idea of remnant had the idea that All throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the way that God's plan was developing, it was sort of boiling down to one little fine point. There were always those that were faithful to God, just like the 7,000 that didn't bow their knee to this false God. And there were always those that said no to God. Paul never says that every single ancient Israelite, he also never says that every single uh, uh, Gentile will say yes to God. But he also doesn't limit God. He doesn't say that everyone will say no to God. And may we never limit God. This idea of remnant is that there would be faithful ancient Israelites all the way up until the point till there was one final faithful Israelite who finished everything, and that was Jesus. And then afterwards, what we see, instead of this narrowing down to one point in time, the climax of the covenant, some theologians call it, this one moment in time, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, it's like an explosion that comes out the other side. And the whole idea of remnant is that there's no limits. It can grow. Sometimes it's called the elect. May we never put limits on God. People love to put limits. They love to build a fence. They love to say, oh, it's going to be done here, and then that's it. You're out, and we're in. And Paul never does that. Anybody in the first century would have never read it that way. They would have understood that the remnant could continue to grow and grow. And that's exactly what we've been seeing happen for the last 2,000 years as people have come to the table of Jesus no one is too far gone. Absolutely no one. May we never, never limit God. So these passages, chapters 9, 10, and 11, are extremely long. And uh, theologians have wrestled with these over the years. Most, t- most of the time when churches teach through the book of Romans, they just leave these out. They'll go up to chapter 8, and then they're done. And okay, we just got eight chapters in. We're done, church. Or they'll go to chapter 8. They might say a few words about 9, 10, 11. And then they jump to chapter 12, because chapter 12 gets really exciting, really practical, and all this stuff. And they kind of leave this stuff out. And so I've had to sort of decide and pick and choose each week, what am I going to include, what am I not going to include, we only have one week on each, and so every week I've tried to give you a couple things to sort of hold on to, kind of like some handlebars as you're going through the rapids, our guide out on the river last week said you got to dig in during the rapids, and there was this little foothold where you could dig in, or you're going to be out if you don't dig in, and so I've tried to give you a couple things to hold on to, so I want to do that this morning, and here's, here's one of them. The first one is consider playing the long game with people. Play the long game. I say that all the time. Play the long game. For 25 years, I've been saying that to parents with their kids. Play the long game. I've sat with 20-somethings. A lot of my ministry has been done over the years with 20-somethings who are grieving over their parents. And there's been this kind of reversal that's happened in their life. And I've said, play the long game with your parents. To play the long game means that you cultivate the type of relationship where you actually can have dialogue, a relationship. You can sit down and have a meal together. You can sit down and have a cup of, cup of coffee together. And it's really, really hard to do that when you're uncomfortable. In that relationship, when it feels awkward in that relationship, when that person is living their life in such a way that completely goes contrary to the way that you feel like life should be lived. But this is exactly how Jesus lived his life. Jesus played the long game with everybody. He did it with the tax collectors. He goes into the house of a chief tax collector who is a criminal, who's stealing money from his own people and giving it to the enemy. He was hated. And he's at the house, and people are saying, why are you eating with all of these tax collectors, these notorious sinners? That's just where Jesus was. He went right into the relationships. He was playing the long game. He did the same thing with the prostitutes. Society shunned the prostitutes, but they used the prostitutes. He did the same thing with the woman at the well. She, she, she worshipped God in the wrong way. She was of a different race, so she was of the wrong race. She was of the wrong sex. He shouldn't have been talking to her. He was a male rabbi. He shouldn't have been hanging out, having this long conversation with this gal. But he did it anyway because he's playing the long game with people. He's the one who would go and he would touch the lepers. No one would touch a leper He would reach out to the children. Children had no status. They had no say in that culture. Jesus was always playing the long game. Paul is telling this little church, play the long game with my people. Live with them. Dine with them. Have relationship with them. Don't cut them off. I realize that sometimes people will not be in relationship with you, and there's nothing that you can do about it, and you must pray for them. And you must carry that burden for them. But if people will have a relationship with you, get uncomfortable. Go into those environments that that you're like, I don't know what to do. I feel like a fish out of water. And the more that you do that, the more that you will identify with Jesus and how he must have felt. Holy, 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 we just sang. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. How do you think he felt in some of these environments? We need to get over ourselves and go right into the relationships with people and play the long game. Paul will, in, in this chapter, I don't have time to read it for you, but he'll use this analogy of, of, of a tree and branches, and, and he's just sort of singing the song that Jesus was singing. Jesus said, I'm the vine and, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you're cut off from me, you won't bear any fruit. But if you're connected to me, if you abide in me, you will actually bear much fruit. Jesus is writing this beautiful symphony and Paul is playing the music. Some people think that they were saying two different things. No, Paul is just picking up and moving the story forward. And so he uses the same analogy, and he, and he says, you know, my people, because of unbelief, they, they've fallen off of the branch, they've been cut, they've been, or they've fallen off of the, the, the vine, they've been cut off of this tree. And, and these, these Gentiles are now flooding into the church, and they're being grafted in. But don't you get arrogant, Gentiles, because if, if you don't believe, you won't be grafted in. And if they believe, they will be grafted in. They're not too far gone. And he's not talking about individuals, you know, Mr. This Person and Mrs. This Person. He's talking about these two people groups. We don't know when somebody might take that step of faith. Maybe you're here today and you're exploring. Again, as I've said it over and over this morning, no one is too far gone. Come to the table of Jesus He's here, and he loves you, and he's faithful to you. Number one is play the long game. Number two is refuse to judge. Refuse to judge in a couple different ways. One of the ways that we refuse to judge is that we, just, we don't become judgers of others. The church has done way too much of that. But the other is, is that we don't judge God. And and, and I mean specifically this idea that we don't limit God, as I've said earlier. We don't say, okay, God, you can do this, but you can't do that. Judgers have such limited capacity to love. You see, for the history of the church, the church has done some pretty gnarly and bad things. One of the things that we've done is we've used fear tactics to kind of bring people to the table of Jesus. Another thing that we've done is we've sort of manipulated people to the table of Jesus. Another thing that we've tried to do, especially in the last 100 years, especially in the last 40 years, is we've tried to use legislation to get people to the table of Jesus and somehow clean things up around this country and clean things up around this world. Here's the problem. You don't scare people. To the table of jesus do we have to say the truth yeah in love and we don't manipulate people into the kingdom of god and bring them to the table we don't control people we don't force people we don't cajole people are we wise in how we act absolutely but do we manipulate no this is not the plan of jesus and legislating people to the table of Jesus just doesn't work. You know what works? Loving people to the table of Jesus. Most people will come to the table because you bring them, because you love them, because they trust you, because they know you. And they'll come to the table and they'll say, Is this real? Is what my friend who loves me and he's been here for me and this person has played the long game with me and they've gone through the rapids with me, is this real? The majority of people will come to Jesus because of you, because you reached out to them and loved them. And so refuse to judge and instead work on loving instead of judging. And that's what Paul wants this little church to do. Again and again, uh, we're taking this in the story layer, we're taking this in the context and he's saying to these Gentiles, "Don't, don't judge them and don't judge God's plan for them, love them, love them. Because When you're loving, you don't have time to be arrogant or conceited or to be ignorant or conceited. And that's what Paul's going to say next. If you drop down into verse 25, this is what Paul says. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. And then he says this again, and he already said this sort of in, in chapter 9, but he says Israel has experienced a hardening in part. And so again, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, this idea of hardening. And as we live into this thing that I've been calling the Jesus, Jesus humanity, we are shaped by it like, like, like an artist will shape some clay. And as we say no, and as we say no, and as we say no to that, and we live in other ways, we are shaped by it as well. And Paul's saying over and over and over again, my people, the ancient Israelites, have have said no. And they've been hardened over and over and over. But he says it's only been in part. Which is two things. One is remember that there's a remnant. But also, also, he doesn't want anyone to limit God. That's what's happened to my own people, Paul says. I am grieving. I I am beyond grieving for this. But I have hope still because it's only in part. And then if we read the rest of the verse, this is what he says. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, in the Greek, the almost always the only way to take that phrase is in this matter or this is the mode this is the way in which God is carrying out his plan in this way all Israel will be saved and so Paul does what he's been doing all along he did it in chapter 9. We talked about it two weeks ago. He's done it in the, for the entire letter. And what he does is he takes one term and he uses it in two different ways. So back in chapter 9, he used Israel in two completely different ways. If you go back to chapter 9, in, uh, in the beginning of the, of the chapter, it says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He uses Israel in two different ways. What in the world is Paul up to here? He uses the whole idea of Abraham's offspring in two different ways. He says, Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Wait a minute. I'm I'm his descendant. You're saying I'm not his children? He uses it in two different ways. He does the same thing throughout the whole letter. Back in chapter 2, he uses other terms in different ways. In chapter 2, in verse 28, he says, A person is not a Jew. That's another term. Who is one only outwardly? Nor is circumcision, that's another term, circumcision was a boundary marker. It marked who was out and who was in. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. And this is what he says. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And he begins to redefine these terms. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not the written code. It's not how good you can be. It's not who, what group you belong to. It's not because you have these commandments. It's about the Spirit of God. And when Jesus ascended, he sent his Spirit, that we may have the Spirit in us, working through us, walking with us. God is with us. All of chapter 4 is all about Abraham. Abraham in Romans. Brad taught through this a while back. It's all about the children of Abraham, and and he basically sums up chapter 4 and says, anyone who believes, not that intellectual belief, not that one time off or follow the formula, but it's that, as I was talking about last week, one foot in front of the other belief. All who believe are the children of Abraham. Paul takes Israel, he takes Abraham, he takes Jew, he takes circumcision, he takes all these things, and he starts to redefine them. He doesn't doesn't nullify the ancient Israelites, but he starts to bring understanding to his overarching plan and how that plan has moved from one chapter to another chapter. And now it's about the people of faith in Jesus. And this is God's mission. This is God's plan. You see, the Gentile mission is the Jesus mission. This is the way, in this manner, in this mode, Gentiles, But yes, Jews will be coming to the table to dine and to feast and to be one family in Jesus. God will save all Israel. Who is that? It's all who trust by faith. It's all who come to the table regardless of what your ethnicity is. When will this happen? During the course of present history. This is the Jesus mission, the Gentile mission. It's all about the world. It's not just about a strip of land in the Middle East. That strip is very important, but so is every other strip of land in the world. God's plan was to redeem the whole world of all people. How will it happen? Through coming to faith in Jesus. And I can imagine at this point in the letter, Paul just puts down his pen. And he takes a breath. And he kind of pushes his chair back from the scroll. And I can imagine when this young church in Rome was reading this letter, that whoever was reading it just took a breath and put down the scroll. And everybody in the audience sort of just took a breath. And then maybe somebody way in the back on the Gentile side stood up. And he said, oh my oh oh my and he looked over to somebody that was standing up on the jewish side because they were saying oh my and they were looking at one another going yes we we are coming to the same table we we have to be one in jesus and i can imagine this whole, whole side of the congregation looking at that whole side saying oh my we're so sorry God is not done with you. Absolutely, he's not done with you. What have we been doing? Why have we been fighting? This is crazy. Let us come together and get on with the mission of love that God has for us in this city. And Lakeside Church, may we come together. And let us get on with the mission of love that God has for us in this city, in this region. All throughout this series, I've been trying to encourage us. And in week one, I talked about the fact that God will never let us down. He'll never let you down. He's here, he loves you, and he's faithful. And in week two, I encourage you to tell the story. Learn the story of God and learn your story. Tell them often and tell them well. Because it's the sacred stories that have power for us in our relationships just like they had power when Paul was telling the sacred story to this church. And then let's get on with the business of loving people because no one, even you, no one is too far gone. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, thanks for your amazing love for us, that you are here and you love us and you're faithful. May we grab onto that this morning, lock it in our hearts, because we're going to need it. God, we need it every single day of our lives. But there are times when, wow, it really is helpful to us to know that. Even when we don't feel it, but we, we can hold on to it during the whitewater rapids of life. So God, thanks for your faithfulness to us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.